Hi, I'm Miranda. And I'm Stephanie. We've been friends for more than 15 years. I live in Ottawa. And I live in Winnipeg. I'm raising two girls. And I'm raising two boys. We're both wives and working moms who do our best to make it all work and to enjoy our empowered lives. We think feminism is still a work in progress in our homes, our workplaces, and our politics. And we love to learn, especially from other women. So we started Women Don't Do That to talk about issues women care about today and to inspire us to do whatever it is we think we can't do. Jennifer Ditchburn is the Editor-in-Chief of Policy Options, an award-winning online magazine with the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Jennifer spent more than two decades covering national and parliamentary affairs for the Canadian press and for CBC television. She has received numerous awards for her outstanding work as a journalist and columnist, and in 2015, she was named one of the 10 most influential Hispanic Canadians. Jennifer received her master's in journalism from Carleton University, where she is now a fellow with the Clayton H. Riddell Graduate Program in Political Management. She has been inducted into the Hall of Distinction at CEGEP John Abbott College. For those of you who have never heard of CEGEP, it is a post-secondary option exclusive to the province of Quebec. Jennifer is also a mom of two school-aged daughters, and she is speaking to me from her home in Ottawa. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on. What does life look for you right now, Jennifer? How, how has this whole social distancing COVID-19 situation changed life and work for you? Well, first of all, I've been working from home basically since about March 17th, 18th. Um, so my, both my, my spouse and I work from home uh, full time and our, both of our children are at home with us. So, you know, it's, um, it, it has changed definitely family life as it's changed for, for most people. But in terms of the running of the magazine, uh, the magazine's running at full tilt or even, even busier now with all of the policy work that, um, that's being done. So, so yeah, it's just a different, <laughs> different work environment, I guess. What ages are your kids? Are you in the middle of homeschooling as well as working right now? Or what's, what does that look like? My kids are um, 12 and 15, uh, so grade 6 and grade 9. And um, they're slowly getting more work um, from school. Uh, otherwise, they've been you know, doing different things on their own, um, art, and uh, there's a lot of cooking going on in our house, uh, reading. Um, you know, just a kind of a, a variety of activities that they're trying to do to keep themselves busy. But it's a it's a challenge to sort of oversee their schoolwork and also work full time. Um, but not half as bad as people who have younger children, I would imagine. Thanks for sharing that. I know it's uh, been an exercise in managing my expectations. I just have one in school right now in, in the second grade. And I think at first I had all these lofty ideas of how I was going to use this time to advance this education. And I had to kind of have a bit of a reality check pretty quick. But I think there's lots of ways that we can use this time at home, even if it's very different than how it usually is. Um, You're someone, of course, who by nature of your work really has to stay on top of the news and be an expert on current affairs. I'm very curious to know as you follow what's happening in Canada and around the world with COVID-19, how are you responding personally? Does 
what you're reading and learning cause you to feel more empowered or afraid? Um, I, I'm not certain. I mean, I, I feel like you can, you know, read a gazillion things a day, which I do. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that we can't control the situation. So, you know, I feel I've, I've educated myself as much as I can about keeping my family safe and, and myself safe and, and my loved ones. And, um, you know, it, it, and also to the point of uh, explaining to people in my circle what sources that they should uh, rely on and which ones they should ignore. But um, there really isn't a way to know when we'll get back to normal or, or what the economy will look like or what our the school system is going to look like, what, whether the kids will be back in school in September. I mean, none of those things are certain. So at a certain point you have to kind of let go of the desire to, to know <laughs> everything. And, um, you know, I, th- I think I'm planner by, by nature and that's sort of been a difficult thing. Letting go is a, is a really, you know, it's a hard thing when you, when you like things to be planned in advance or, or, you know, your calendar is all set in months and months in advance. For me, that's also the, one of the tough things for me has also been travel because I love to travel. Um, I think I've canceled four different things over the next six months. <laughs> um, and so that's been also like a really, I think a big life lesson. Yeah. That lack of clarity. I think is a struggle for so many of us. Um, I wanted to ask you about what sources you are leaning on right now. And you, you said how you, you know, you're, you're giving your friends some advice around that. What would you tell our listeners in terms of the the best sources to be following right now and what to be wary of? You know, go with the ones that have stated standards that have um, public editors that have um, journalistic guidelines that they abide by. So, you know, that would, would be the all the major ones that you can think of, um, Globe and Mail, the Toronto or the CBC, the Canadian Press, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Le Monde in France, um, um, El País in Spain. Like the, the 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 big legacy media, I think, continue to be a reliable source. And I know people often, you know, will bring up errors that appeared in in newspapers or say, you know, oh, this, you know such and such an outlet reported this and then they had to change it and which I you know I fully acknowledge but the difference between an organization that has standards and and values and an organization that doesn't is that the ones that have standards and values will admit when they've made a mistake and correct it and um, I think you know something to important to realize when you're dealing with something that's rapidly changing like like the pandemic is. So in terms of official um, sources, you know, at the Public Health Agency of Canada, um, Centers for Disease Control in the United States, I just ask, you know, people, if you see something go by on Facebook, we're all on Facebook a lot now, or Twitter, you know, check the name of the organization. If, if it doesn't feel familiar to you, search a little bit longer. Um, look at who they are and who publishes them. Are they actually a real news site? And if you have a doubt, just don't, don't share, don't share stuff from sources that you, you're not, you're not familiar with and don't seem to have any, you know, real staff or real standards standards or values. Thank you. I'm not surprised that you're so passionate about that. Um, 
you and I actually both, we have something in common. We both studied journalism at Carleton. I, I, I know from my education that that was a, a big a big part of our instruction. When I graduated, I told myself all kinds of scary things about pursuing a career in journalism and what that would mean. And I ultimately went down a different path. Um, you, on the other hand, you, you went for it. And I'm very curious to know what were your expectations going into life in a newsroom and how did your actual experience compare? Well, I'd have to say that um, journalism lived up to everything that I I hoped for when I was younger. Um, I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was in, probably since I was 12 or 13. It just seemed to be something that would enable me to write, which I loved, and also to to make a living. Um, I don't... I don't know if I ever could have been a novelist, but when I was younger, I decided that that wasn't a way that I was going to be able to to pay the bills. <laughs> so um, I pursued journalism pretty doggedly from from the time I was in Sage Up uh, through university, and I started freelancing and after my first year of university for different publications. And I have to say that just from the out right from the get go, from my my first real job at the Canadian Press. I I loved it. I mean, it was exciting. Um, I loved the writing. I loved chasing stories and speaking to people. Uh, it was a really exciting year to start work too in 1995 because it was the year of the the sovereignty referendum. And so to me, I just had stars in my eyes. I I found it um, very rewarding work and super fun. And uh, I felt that way for the next how many years? <laughs> Over 20 years. Um, working for the Canadian press and for CBC. Uh, I mean, there's experiences I have that, um, you know, I wouldn't trade They're They're, they were amazing travel and people that touch you, interesting interviews. Yeah. So it really, for me, it lived up to what I had hoped it would be. One of my personal reasons for ultimately not pursuing a career in journalism was what I perceived to be, um, I guess, that it, I guess I perceived that it wouldn't be family friendly, that it was, that it required uh, a commitment that I wasn't sure I was willing to give. Clearly you embraced it and you enjoyed it and loved it and it was rewarding and fulfilling. Was there ever a point where it felt like too much though, or, or it felt unbalanced? Uh, definitely when, when I had my first child, and I returned from mat leave. I was still working for uh, CBC National Television. And a, a, a few months after I had my, my first daughter, I decided that I needed to move on because I, I couldn't reconcile the long hours that I'd be working there with, with having uh, this one-year-old at home. So I, I went back to the Canadian press. Um, when I had my second daughter, uh, after about a year, I, I think it was about a year I went to a four-day work week, which was really great of my employer. Um, I think they they showed a lot of sort of flexibility and understanding for the challenges that there are in in having children at home and having a a rather high-pressure job as a parliamentary correspondent. So I did find my balance, um, and I made choices that I don't regret. Um, You know, I could have worked in television for a lot longer, but um, it just wasn't this kind of schedule that I felt I could live with. 
with my, my daughters at home and I don't fault anyone else who can do that. Uh, I just felt that I couldn't myself. So, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I found ways to make it, to make a go of it for sure. Do you think the newsroom has always been that open to making accommodations for mothers? Is that something that's fairly new or was that your particular employer? Or um, I'm just curious if that's reflective of uh, what you would think is, is the normal experience for women in journalism or mothers in journalism. Well, I know there's been um, research in the States about the lack of women with children in different uh, national newsrooms. And I don't have it at my fingertips, but there has been a very interesting public discussion about that, that newsrooms tend to be unfriendly to women. Um, well, act, you know, any, any family with young children. Um, I, I don't think I can comment broadly on, on newsrooms across Canada because every newsroom is different. It has different practices to what they, they think are acceptable. But I think, you know, oftentimes uh, people are, you know, uh, timid about um, asking for changes or suggesting different work arrangements. And um, once you can show that you, you can do your work and do it well and, um, you know, with a, with a different working arrangement or different um, kind of structure, uh, I think that's all it takes. Uh, people can can kind of get rooted in a particular view of what will work in a particular kind of uh, job. And so, um, you know, I, I think I've always had a, a point of view of, you know, trying things and and um, not assuming that the answer is going to be no before you even ask. And I think, you know, people can maybe be afraid of of asking their employer for different different uh jobs or or structures and you know it's it's always worth trying and seeing what will work and uh, i think with more women now there's significantly more women in in journalism and in, in sort of the higher echelons in ger- journalism then we have a critical mass that can enable us to change how uh, our workplaces places look and uh, how they they treat um uh, young parents in the, in the workplace I think that's great advice that you share from your perspective and, and your experience, right? Is don't be afraid to ask for those accommodations. If you are someone who has proven yourself to be committed to your work, then, uh, you know, be, be willing to have those discussions and, and ask that of your employer and see what kind of creative solutions you can come to. So what does, uh, what does your work look like now? Like perhaps maybe not specific to the COVID situation, but as the editor in chief of, of an online policy forum uh, for people who aren't really familiar with that sort of work, what, what does that entail? Tell, give us kind of the inside look of that. The policy options is a 40 year old magazine um, for the last four and a half years. We've been completely digital and we publish every weekday on issues of public policy. And it really runs the gamut, everything from healthcare to artificial intelligence and the art of policy making itself. So I, I lead a team that um, produces the, the um, magazine and we take, uh, we solicit and we take in submissions on um, a range of policy issues and uh, promote them and publish them. 
and uh, collaborate with a lot of different institutions, academic institutions, research institutions. We also hold events. We have a podcast every two weeks. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a really um, rewarding job because you deal with so many ideas on a daily basis. You deal with so many interesting, very wise people. I, I really love my job because of that. It's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the opportunity to collaborate with people on a daily basis and to, to help them be thought leaders and to mobilize their knowledge um, is really something that, you know, gets me out of bed every day. I, 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 I appreciate that kind of work. And, um, you know, it's still, my, my, my foot is still in the media and, um, and in, in politics to a certain extent. But the nature of my work has changed uh, from what I was doing before, which was daily reporting. Now, um, the experts who I might have quoted in a, in a piece years ago are now writing entire pieces for me. So it's a, a really great place to work. I, my, I should mention the magazine is published by the Institute for Research for Public, Pol Public Policy. And um, so I'm also in daily contact with my colleagues who, who work on peer-reviewed research projects. And that's also, you know, really fun to watch that process. I love that answer. I, I work at a university and one of the best parts of it is the opportunity they have to connect with the researchers or the different thought leaders. And that's not as much a part of my job as I would like. But uh, I think when you have a career that you know, it gives you that opportunity to celebrate your love of learning and, and stay uh, tapped into, you know, where science is taking us and, and the new things we're learning. It's really exciting. Uh, and it's great that there's people like you who are passionate about it and committed to that work because it's so important. I recently read uh, a piece you wrote. Um, it was a lament of the cancellation of the UN Commission on the Status of Women, which would have taken place, I think, last month in March in New York if it weren't for coronavirus. And the event was also meant to mark the 25th anniversary of the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing, which you attended in 1995. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share what that experience meant to you. I guess you would have been a young university student at the time and why you feel today that these types of conferences are still so important. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience. So it was uh, in my last year of university at Concordia during my undergrad, and I was the co-news editor of the university paper there, which is called The Link. And my, my co-news editor, whose name is Carol McQueen, she and I had seen talk about this big UN conference that was going to happen in Beijing. And we said, why don't we try to see if we can't go? And so we started fundraising like crazy and got a bunch of money from different pockets of the university, I think from our MPs and from our um, members of the National Assembly in our, in our various communities. And um, so we, we scratched together this money and we, we managed to get accredited to go and uh, cover the conference for our university paper. But also um, I had a side freelance contract with a, a weekly newspaper in, in Montreal. And so um, we went, to, I, you know, to, I was trying to recall how long we were there. I think it must have been about 10 days, but uh, the, the conference was colossal. I mean, it was, I think, about 30,000 women from around the world. And um, neither of us had ever been to China. Um, 
that China, this was just the, a few years after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, it was very unusual for China to be hosting uh, a, an international conference of this scale. And it was really uh, under uh, an um, enormous amount of global scrutiny. And there are all kinds of uh, weird things that happened. I think we were you know, all surveilled at one point or another during the conference. There were conflicts between um, exiled Tibetans and the Chinese authorities, between the LGBTQ community and the, the authorities. Um, there was you know, bad organization. But um, it was a, a really wonderful experience because we met women from really around the world, women with incredible stories, some of them heartbreaking. We learned about so many issues that we hadn't been exposed to before. We were in our early 20s at the time. And, um, you know, I, 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 it, I think it's hard to know um, how a certain experience would have marked you in the long term. But, um, you know, both Carol and I, I, I don't want to speak for her, but, you know, we've, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. We, you know, I've, I've had an interest in uh, gender equality uh, for my whole life. And um, Carol has now, she's gone on to a, a career in, in the foreign service and is the ambassador to Burkina Faso now, Canada's ambassador. So, um, you know, I think, you know, it was definitely a really interesting way for us to sort of mark the, the beginning of our careers. Um, for me, anyway, I, I was working, I had my first job at Canadian Press simultaneously. So a, f a couple of months before that conference, I had uh, gotten a job offer to work there part-time. And Carol had um, won the Rhodes Scholarship. So, I mean, it was a really in interesting punctuation point for both of us at the end of our, our undergrad. It, it sounds like an amazing experience. Would you say, looking back, that enough has changed since that time? Like, can, if if the UN Commission on the Status of Women would have happened last month, do you think a lot of the same issues would have still been relevant and, and been the focus of the conversation? Yes, I mean, sadly, there there hasn't been uh, enough movement on on in many areas. Um, you know, maybe the the emphasis of the conversation is, has changed now. Um, so the commission's conference that was canceled in uh, New York, the overarching theme is still gender equality. We talk a lot more about um, the impact of climate on women, um, but, you know, there's still the same domestic violence is still, uh, you know, we're still seeing it in, in huge um, numbers across the, across the world. It's a, it's a major problem still. I, I think of everything that we talked about at that conference um, persists as a problem. But if there is anything that, that might have come from that conference, it was mobilizing um, you know, generations of women to continue to work on those issues. So, um, you know, I, if, if there's one thing I can think of, for example, was at the time of the conference, it, it seemed fairly unusual to have a tent for LGBTQ issues. And I don't even think they called it LGBTQ at the time. I think it was just like, you know, LGB tent that they had at the conference. Uh, so, I mean, if I had to think of one thing in Canada in particular that's changed significantly, it's um, the, um, you know, granting same-sex marriage rights uh, across the country at that and in the, in the 2000s. So that was, you know, something that, markedly changed here. 
But if you look at all kinds of other issues in Canada, including the treatment of Indigenous women and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which was an issue that was raised back then, um, you know, un unfortunately, there's still uh, chronic systemic problems that we have in Canada and, um, you know, that we're there, there's still lots and lots of room to work on. Thank you for raising that. It's important, I think, to reflect on how slow progress has been and where where we have made strides, but also where we still really need to shine a light. I, uh, I, I'm going to ask you now the questions that we close with for every guest. Jennifer, what's the best rule you ever broke? Well, it's funny because I feel like in journalism, you kind of live always by this maxim of... Um, ask forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> and um, I, I feel like I still sort of have that inside me where, you know, sort of daring to do things or go places where, you know, maybe you're not allowed or not supposed to. <laughs> but um, I'd, I'd say more specifically, I guess, if you view your academic path as a as supposed to be a rule, then the two times that I broke the path, um, probably had the most significance for me in my life. So um, at the end of high school, I went to live in France for a year. And um, I was able, when I was there, to, to learn French and master French. And um, at the end of university, uh, so in, in 1995, as I mentioned, I started to work for the Canadian Press. I didn't have my undergrad yet. Um, and so I just decided that I would, you know, leave school anyway and pursue the job. I did get my undergrad um, six months later by doing it more or less by correspondence. But um, I guess in both of those instances, I um, kind of deviated from the, the path of continuing my education in a straight line. And had I not attained bilingualism and I had, had I not gone to work for press um, at the end, partway through my third year of, uh, of university, I think my life would be much different than it is now. Both those things really set me on my way. That's a great answer. So many people answer that question with, oh, I'm such a rule follower. <laughs> and so it's refreshing to hear someone say that they em embrace the, the ask for forgiveness and not permission model of things sometimes. And, and, uh, yeah, and I, I love hearing how people carve their own path. What is your most valuable habit that was the hardest to create? Well, I I don't know. I guess it's hard to create in the sense that it takes time, but I guess the most valuable habit is is to prepare, 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 prepare for public events. And um, you know, I I, I learned a, a while ago that you know, you, you can never mail it in when you're asked to participate in, in either moderating or, or as a panelist or on a television show or on a radio show, that you should always prepare as much as you humanly can. Um, I think maybe sometimes I can over-prepare, but um, I think that you can never lose. You can never lose if, if you show up at, a, a, at some sort of live speaking event, having actually done your homework and knowing what you want to say and the points that you, have, you want to get across. So that, I guess, is, you know, one habit that I've kind of drilled into myself. And um, 
the other thing I would say that it's kind of a work in progress is that I took a mindfulness course last fall, which really resonated with me. And I, I, I can see very logically the benefits it has, uh, meditation and so on, but um, developing a daily practice is a whole, a whole other thing. I know that there are probably people out there who know exactly what I'm talking about, but um, so that's sort of the habit that I would like. And that I'm working hard on. I, um, one of the standout moments for me uh, from an interview that Stephanie did with uh, um, Rhiannon Rosalind from the Economic Club, she said, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but you need to be the most prepared. And that reminds me very much of your answer, right? You're, you're, so much confidence is going to come from taking the time to prepare. So I, I'm sure that will connect with a lot of listeners. Um, and yes, I think there's a lot of people who can relate to you with the mindfulness practice. I'm reading Eckhart Tolle's book right now, uh, A New Earth, and he yep. talks, of, uh, you know, of course, quite a bit about um, mindfulness and whatnot. But one one line that I read recently, and I'm sure I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he said something to the effect of when you essentially meditate just for the sake of meditating and not for the purpose of trying to achieve anything or better yourself, then then that's when you can experience how it was meant to be experienced or something along those lines. I was like, okay, so now I need to, to do this, but not actually try, not actually. I'm like, oh, this is, it, it's funny how it's meant to be centering and, and all, you know, have all these positive benefits. But um, sometimes I feel like for me, it's two steps forward and one step back and uh, not always, not always as, as simple and Zen as I, you know, imagine it is for everybody else. So I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's <laughs> yes finding yeah. it a challenging habit to uh, to embrace. Um, finally, Jennifer, can you share with us a book that made you wiser? Um, yeah. So uh, the, there's a book I'm thinking kind of in in recent uh, memory, uh, a book by Chris Voss called "Never Split the Difference: Negotiate, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It." And um, Voss was a, a former FBI um, negotiator, and he has this fabulous book that can be applied in, in so many situations to the art of negotiation. And I've used parts of the book, but not in the way that you might think, in the, in the sense of dealing with difficult situations with people um, rather than negotiating a contract or something like that, which I'm sure the book is also useful for. But I think um, his book really makes you look at interactions with with each other when one person wants to get something out of the other in a whole different light. And, um, you know, looking at at it more from an emotional standpoint. And so I found the book really useful for me. I've I've thought about it and come back to it many, many times um, over the years. Well, I, I think I've read it about a year and a half ago or two years ago. Are the tactics in the book, is it about, is it, I guess from the title, it sounds like it's more about getting your way, but is it also about being more of a fair negotiator, like a, a better listener or, or kind of what's the perspective? Yes. Um, well, the listening is, is key. And, um, and also to, I think coming from my, my background in journalism, 
which can be a very adversarial environment. So often your reaction to people when they want to challenge you on something, because you get people emailing you, calling you, fighting with you, insulting you, I mean, you name it, is to fight back, um, you know, push back just as strongly. And so, you know, what I, after reading this book, I realized that in, all, in most cases, that's the absolute wrong approach to take if you want to come to a, a compromise. I don't see it so much as getting your own way, but coming to a mutually, um, kind of mutually satisfactory result over a, a conflict or a hard is not to um, hit the person back with as much force. It's to listen to them and how how they're feeling and reflecting it back to them and and letting them know that you empathize with what what they're going through or what their perceived wrong is. Um, I hope I'm I'm doing his book justice, but you know there it's definitely written so it can be used in the context of negotiating a contract or a salary but i think in many cases you know if if your reflex is to 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 give it as good as you're getting it you might never actually get to the point that you want to arrive at thanks for expanding on that because i know for myself i'm often uh accused or maybe occasionally complimented for being a, an assertive negotiator. And so I, I wonder like, should I stay away from books like that? Like I, I'm already perhaps, you know, more assertive than is ideal, but I think it's good to recognize that they're the, the best way to ne- ne- negotiate, like you're saying, is to listen and to empathize and to look for those mutually beneficial options. So that's a great recommendation. Thank you. We haven't had that one before. Uh, well, Jennifer, thanks so much for making time for this conversation and for sharing from your experiences and your story. Uh, I hope people will, uh, check out policy options and your podcast and just, it's, it's a great source of really, um, you know, like you were saying, uh, pieces from thought leaders and researchers, uh, that especially right now when it's so very important to lean on reliable news sources uh, can just um, be a great asset to us in our lives right now. So thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Women Don't Do That. We hope you're inspired to do whatever it is you think you can't do. Find all our podcasts and blog content at womendontdothat.com and stay connected with us on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time.